Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach at sumatisparks.com. And tonight I'm really excited to have as my guest, Romy Elon. Romy is the founder of Soul Play, an organization that produces festivals and other events aimed at creating more connection in the world. Every year, Soul Play invites thousands of people to drop into their body, allow their minds to quiet, and foster a deeper connection with themselves, the people around them, and their environment. Romy lives in San Francisco with his partner of 10 years, Noah, and their gorgeous two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, whose name, of course, is Gaia. Welcome to the show, <laughs> Romy. Thank you, Timothy. Fit to be so here. glad to have you here. Yeah. So I went to, I think it was the first Soul Play Festival when it was called something else, um, and I found it to be just really well run and delightful, and I called it a boutique festival because it was small and intimate. Um, So I want to ask you, what made you, how did you know that there was a niche for a festival like that when there's already so many festivals out there? Yeah, so thank you for, for asking that. Um, and yes, the first years it was called Ecstatic back then, uh, before we changed the name to Soul Play. What I feel is special about Soul Play, and what really kind of why why we felt why we felt that there was this niche that we could that we could that was needed, is really the fact that you know we throw around the term festival a little bit lightly, and I think uh, Soul Play at the end of the day is somewhere kind of a combination of a retreat and a festival or somewhat of a festive retreat. And what really came about is, so I, I moved to the U.S., back to the U.S. about uh, five and a half years ago. And I had come uh, after being in Israel for, for a couple of decades. And there, there were all these events that were kind of similar to this. They were very workshop focused, but also had, uh, had live music and DJs and kind of all the elements that you have in regular festivals. But they were more than about the lineup. They were really focused on the connection, on the content. And when I came here uh, to the U.S., although there were lots of festivals, I, f- I found them to be really aimed at, uh, you know, the lineup, the music lineup. So the whole festival is built around a stage or, or multiple large stages. And, yes, a lot of them also provide workshops and, you know, ways for people to connect in other ways. But uh, it's, it, hasn't really, it wasn't really the focus. And on the flip side of that, I also witnessed places like Harbin, or other organizations like the Human Awareness Institute that provide workshops that go very, very deep uh, in getting people connected, but they, they lack a certain um, lightness and fun that I was looking for. And so really what I, what I aim to do with SoulPlay is to put those two worlds together and to, to bring the, you know, the depth and the, the growth of kind of a weekend workshop, a weekend retreat, but uh, infuse it with the fun and lightheartedness of of a festival, and really that's how Soul Play was born. Beautiful. So where did you see other festivals that were more intimate? In Europe, or? Yeah, so uh, in Europe, this is uh, way more, was more prevalent. Uh, I grew up in Israel, uh, and mm-hmm. Israel, funny enough, whatever you might think of Israel, uh, happens to be one of the uh, kind of biggest centers for people that came out of, you know, Osho back in the day, uh, so Osho's teachings out in Pune, or there was, there was a time when he was here in the U.S. 
So a lot of Israelis really brought those teachings back to Israel and created these festivals around that kind of work, around this uh, connection and meditation, but in a fun, light way. And so there's lots of cool festivals and events like this in Israel. Uh, And so when I came to the U.S., I looked around and just could not find the kind of the, you know, the like, like for like event. Right, because I've been to big festivals and they're not very connective unless you go with your own existing, pre-existing group or pre-existing community of friends. It can be very isolating. Yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 I mean, at the end of the day, when you go to a big festival, it's beautiful. I have nothing bad to say about big festivals. It's, a, it's an amazing experience. Uh, big art, big stages. It's, it's a very kind of uh, impactful and powerful experience. And uh, a lo- that's a lot of what it is. It's kind of this, this experience that kind of hits you really hard. Uh, you enjoy it. Um, for some, you know, in some ways, it can, it can transform the way you are. But in many ways, it just kind of kicks you back out into your real life, which happens to be more dull. And, and then you just kind of wait for the next one to come around because that's the next time you get to, to feel this peak. And one of the things that I really wanted to accomplish and still, you know, aspire to accomplish every time is how do we take a group of people, um, bring them to an event that, you know, uh, provides an opportunity for them to learn, to grow, uh, and to have this experience, but that's, that's actually, uh, leave them with the ability to take that feeling and take those connections and take the tools that they learn home with them and continue living their life in a way um, that's similar to what they just were introduced to at the festival. That's, you know, at one of our mm, events. Nice. Great. So what are some of the ways that you go about trying to keep that ongoing connection after the festival? Well, there's several, I think there's several things that happen both during and uh, between our events that keep it going. One of the things I think that's, that's key in this environment, and it has multiple purposes, is that our events, uh, first and foremost, are substance-free. So we really encourage people to try to experience this uh, full weekend of dancing and connecting uh, without their usual bottle or usual substance. And that in uh-huh. itself uh, goes a long way to providing kind of uh, allowing people to stay with the tools that they, that they received during the event. So people typically, they come and then because of that, because of that clarity of mind, uh, they, people tend to leave the festival still um, with, again, remembering everything that they did and the connections that they made, they, they kind of can count on, on the reality of them and not just kind of, you know, wake up the next morning and think to myself, oh, what did I do? So that's like one way that we do it in the festival. <laughs> And the second, and then, and then throughout the year, we throw, well, first of all, we have kind of different virtual groups, so on, on Facebook, and uh, we stay in touch with the community uh, over email, but then we throw multiple events. First of all, so we have three large, larger kind of multi-day events uh, in the year, so Soul Play Festival in June, Bear Fest in the end of July, and Fall Fest in mid-September. And then on top of that, we have pretty much almost every month at least another event, which we call Soul Play Connect, in one of our kind of regions. So we, ha- we throw them in Santa Cruz and Oakland, San Francisco, Grass Valley, North Bay. And so pretty much like at least once a month, we have some kind of event going on for the community to come together and, and meet each other. And so it's, it's special. Beautiful. 
So, wow, it seems like it's really grown and taken off in a few short years. What kind of background did you have that allowed you to create such a successful um, production? So my background, I'd say, is is twofold. Uh, one, I've always interested in experience design. So creating events was always a part of my DNA. When I was in high school, I started my own production company and was a DJ and rented out equipment to uh, neighboring municipalities. Uh, and throughout college, I kind of put myself through college uh, while being kind of a club promoter and party promoter. And it was very much in my in my DNA that you know, kind of thinking about a space, how to dress it up, how, how do you curate an experience for people from start to end. And then, but that was kind of more of a hobby, I have to say. Uh, besides that, I was working at the time, about 10 years ago, I was working as a management consultant, really doing like heavy duty business consulting for very large corporations. And it was, it was quite a fun and interesting and challenging time. And I did that for a few years and then went to business school here. And that's kind of what brought me to, to the U S I came to business school and went here to UC Berkeley. That whole world, what I really understood while I was at business school was that I don't want to go back to the world of consulting that I was in. Uh, it really, what really ended up feeling to me like I was just moving uh, numbers from one spreadsheet to another, something was missing. And the, that thing that was missing was, was the people. And I really, I looked at like the different projects and different things that I actually did enjoy doing. And I always came back to like the project that I, that I most enjoyed doing and wanted to do more of were always the one where there was a human element, someone who was struggling and, and I was able to help or someone, you know, in some way. And so at the end of business school, I kind of decided not to go back into that world. And I vowed to make part of my own personal mission to, um, kind of be part of the solution to improve people's lives in a very kind of uh, deep way, not just, you know, by creating kind of a product that they see once a day, but actually transforming the way people interact with each other, people, you know, their relationship with themselves, their relationship with their sexuality. Um, and those are the kind of, that's really what drove me. So I just, I kind of left that world behind and took a leap and haven't looked back since. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. And, how so the the festival feels very inclusive um i notice there's uh, a predominance of um you know dance and music and fun and play but also there's some workshops on sexuality tantra um it's not a sex orgy play party or anything like that um but there's a, a permissiveness around it um as well as um it felt very inclusive of different um, relationship styles and since my audience is primarily people interested in non-monogamy and open relationships I wanted to ask you how how do you create an environment of inclusivity at your festivals thank you um, so I think it's worth mentioning that uh, kind of the guiding thesis of our of, of soul play it's all about connection, and then the, but the method that we do it, it's really about uh, embodiment. It's really about bringing people into their bodies, because with, with this belief that if we can be in our bodies, truly in our bodies, and in that present moment, and that's kind of what you said in the beginning, uh, people's minds, they, 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 we allow them to go quiet, 
And then something happens when you're fully in your body and you're in front of another person fully in their body. And the connection that happens is so real that um, it makes the whole thing worthwhile. It actually kind of, that is what, what I look for. And that is what people look for. And that's kind of where we try to get to people. That's, that's like the state that we try to get people to. Uh, because of that, we basically, the, the whole method and what we do is we provide a lot of different activities and opportunities for people to do that. And so we do that through dance, through uh, meditations and breath work. We do that through yoga. And then we do that through touch and uh, sensual explorations because all of this is part, it's the same part of our body and how we connect to our bodies. And so First of all, like that was that was always a kind of a, an aim, a goal that we put is to uh, kind of mix different communities together. Uh, so pull from the dance communities and from yoga communities and different tantra communities and central communities. And really, that's what we do. We bring we bring teachers from different communities, and we kind of it's this melting pot where uh, the the dancers you know get to try out tantra for the first time, and the, you know the tantra masters get to go and and do contact improv. And what happens is it knocks everyone a little bit off balance. <laughs> and when it knocks everyone a little bit off balance, people kind of, their, their guards, their guards get removed and they kind of fall. And, and that's when this magic happens. So I think it's, it's, it's really about uh, sending a message that every, everything is welcome here. And that's what we do. Another thing is it's always been just very important uh, for me and for, for our team to uh, to include as a cater to a very diverse audience. So I think another unique thing about uh, our event is that you'll notice that there's a very wide age range uh, from you know people in their 20s to people in their 70s. Okay. We have a very diverse. Uh, we have a lot of people of color, and we do that as well through like we 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 specifically go and recruit presenters and musicians and make sure that they're represented Mm -hmm. we do not we you know and then and then on the non-monogamous part so we uh, understand that so it's kind of interesting i don't think we do a specific activity that are geared towards like you like towards non-monogamy however i think probably most of our workshops in kind of the conservative world would be like most of our touch workshops the fact that we, you know, allow people and encourage people to experience different partners uh, would be considered uh, against the rules in most conservative monogamous circles. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but you went to it before me um, about how you make it so that non-monogamous people feel welcome there as well as monogamous people. Is that intentional or is it just because of the inclusivity that you were already talking about? Well, I think I think it just has to do with the with just the worldview. I mean, one of the things is it has to do with the worldview of of myself and of my team. That I believe in learning through experience and growth through experience. And part of what Soul Play does is it provides a very safe and well thought through and embracing container for people to try things out. And for people to take some risks and, and, and try things that they, you know, maybe don't feel comfortable trying out in the open. Uh, and there's lots of ways we create that safety. But what that, at the end of the day, the outcome is what, the, what that safety does is it ends up, uh, you know, lending itself to people 
uh, trying things. And, and in many ways, this, you know, this ends up also being in terms of their sexuality and their, their sexual partners. It allows them a, an, an amazing platform for them to try things that maybe they, you know, were thinking about and, um, and weren't sure how to do. I think in that way, in that way, it's, you might say it's a little bit, uh, it reminds me a little bit of Burning Man, where I think Burning Man has this uh, characteristic of encouraging everyone to be their radical selves. And so you see people taking a lot of risks and doing things that they, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing themselves to the edge, to their own edge. And I think we kind of encourage people to do that as well in just a little bit of a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And it's a little safer to do it in this kind of environment where there's more acceptance than to stretch yourself out there in the harsh, cruel world, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, there's acceptance. And I think, you know, a third of the people, you know, are, I don't know if a third, but I'd say there's a good portion of the people that are in non-monogamous relationships. And then, you know, a, a lot of the presenters are coaches. And then we also have support. Like we, we actually provide, uh, we have a whole function called soul support, which is uh, trained counselors that are there to help out and mediate when something does arise. And there's some kind of either conflict or misunderstanding or, you know, some kind of, you know, people that need a little bit, uh, you know, a communication lesson or a communication kind of guidance. And uh, we, we provide that as well as kind of support. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you um, about that. But um, before we go into that, I want to mm-hmm. dig a little bit deeper into your story. Um, how has your own relationship style evolved over time? So, my relationship style, I'll just say at the moment, is I'm in a long-term committed married relationship with my partner, and we have a child, and, and, and that's it. So we, we, we currently wouldn't define as, like, polyamorous. It's like if you had to define us, we'd probably be in your book somewhere on, like, closer to the monogamous uh, side. And the reason I'm using terms like side is because I don't view... I view the whole relationship style thing as as a big like scale. It's really hard to, uh-huh. to, to pinpoint one or the other because everyone has different ideas and when you know the different terminology. But uh, we don't date other people, and that's kind of where we're at. However, we go to different events and are happy to share you know touch and sensual touch with with other people, and we don't consider that dating anyone else. Uh, it's evolved. It's evolved over time. I remember when I was about 19 was my first kind of foray into open relationship land. I had a girlfriend who we had just started dating and I was really enthused about her and she was this beautiful and kind of odd and crazy and magnificent redhead and as they, as they are. And I was kind of going out with her. I, I knew nothing about her world. And she took me to, to visit this friend of hers. And we walked into this, this person's uh, house, this person that I've never met. And she jumps on him. And kind of their hello was this, like, 30-second makeout session. <laughs> and that was kind of my – and this is my date, you know. <laughs> right. And, and so I'm standing there looking at this and, you know, feeling that pinch in my stomach, like, what the fuck, what, you know, what, what the hell? And, but kind of like, you know, letting it subside and then just hanging out and 
on the way home, I kind of brought it up and said, you know, that was, that was kind of not cool. It didn't feel very good. And she just said something. She just said like, listen, this is just who I am. And yeah, obviously she could have warned me ahead of time, but she's just like, this is just who I am. And you know, if you can't, if that's not okay, then we probably shouldn't be together. And that was like my first foray into this where over the, over the next, you know, month or two, I basically just accepted that that kind of thing is totally fine. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't uh, really like mean anything in, in our, in terms of our relationship. And so I kind of started that and I've always believed ever since that, that sharing special moments and sharing sensual energy with other people is like an okay thing. That's just my own personal belief that started then. Right. That has well, nothing I'm really to do with like, your relationship. Yeah. Right. No, I'm glad to hear you say that you think of monogamy versus non-monogamy as a more of a scale or a spectrum because I've often wondered like where monogamous people draw the line like how many seconds are you allowed to hug somebody before it's not okay or how long how long are you allowed to stare at an attractive person that walks by you know there's just so many nuances to it that aren't even talked about in general in monogamous relationships they don't negotiate ahead of time um in most cases uh where they say okay i'm comfortable with you hugging someone for three seconds but not four (laughs) you know they don't they don't have those conversations whereas i found that polyamorous people tend to start their relationships out with more negotiation around their agreements, around what type of open relationship, at least sophisticated people do that. I know there's a lot of people that fall into non-monogamous relationships without conversation, but I think those of us who are practicing Mm -hmm. it are trying to have, use our words more and have conversations more. Um, So do you, so do you and your partner talk about what, that looks like for the two of you on that spectrum and how far you go with people and have there been times that you've had a misunderstanding around like you thought this was permissible and she didn't or the other way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, I mean, we do, as you were talking, I was, I was just saying, yeah, I think we, there should be a relationship style. That's something like we are in open communication, which is actually what I think is like the relationship style we're all talking about is, I think, yeah, there's either you're in communication about your needs and, and being honest or you're not. And you know, whether you, you know, polyamorous or monogamous or all these things, I think they're actually uh, kind of arbitrary depending on where you're standing. Because as you said, if you go now to a conservative monogamous circle and we tell them, you know, about the kind of things we do for fun, which is, you know, hang out naked with other naked people and sometimes in a big cuddle pile uh, they're going to be like, mm-hmm. no, you're totally polyamorous or open relationship or one of those things. They don't know, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. They're going to label us something, but they're not going to consider right. us one of them. Right. Uh, so I just want to, I just want to, I want to recognize that uh, it's such a, like, I agree with you, this kind of, it's, it's, it's a fluid thing. And I think the most important thing that you can do that we do and that uh, anyone can do is to be committed to uh, that communication. And yes, we are committed to that communication. We talk about it a lot and that's why kind of we, we go, you know, we're, we're a little bit more fluid in our agreements and things change, but, uh, but that's why it's very hard for me to define like where we are on the scale. Cause I think the scale moves. 
especially when you're mm-hmm. in, if you're in like a long-term primary partnership, which is what I would say we are. It's, you know, it, a lot of it depends also on external factors. Like we're, you know, how busy we are with our jobs plus children uh, actually affects the amount of time that we allow ourselves to, to, to think about other, other things. Mm-hmm. And so after you met that woman when you were young who made out with the guy, um, did mm-hmm. you ever explore, um, uh, you know, more multi- having multiple lovers or um, did that just inform the type of communication that you had with your partners? Um, I'm trying to think. I think I've, so I've definitely had relationships with, like, with her and then after her with multiple lovers, but I haven't myself, so I haven't had, like, a separate, like, two relationships going at the same time. Um, okay. I've had with, with, I've had times where we've had kind of um, lovers that we've brought in, mm-hmm. but never, like, where I'm running a full-on relationship in separate that I've never, I've yeah. never had that. Well, I would say bringing in a lover is <laughs> is definitely in within the definition of open relationship. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um, no, no, for sure. Like that's why I said there's all this, this scale of like I have my own internal exactly. scale and what I consider more extreme versus less extreme, <laughs> but uh, and everyone has their own. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit more about your own life. I appreciate that. Um, and I also wanted to ask before we before we continue, I just want to let people know that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Romy Elan, the founder of Soul Play Festivals, and I'm really excited to be learning about the um, the gears underneath the festivals because the festivals are so beautiful and intimate and so great about uh, allowing people to make authentic connections and um, bring what people learn there at the festival home with them. Um, so I want to ask you, Romy, how did you, how did, what was your background that, that allowed you to come to realize that intimacy can be created through embodiment and quieting mm-hmm. our mind? because that's not something that you're going to see every day in the mainstream world, that people should quiet their mind and get into their body. So how did you come to know that that was the pathway to intimacy and deeper connection? Uh, well, I just want to say first that I think every, every teenage boy uh, knows this truth. Um, every teenage boy that's ever made out with a girl and kind of had to take their mind away from the moment and kind of say, Oh, garbage trucks or baseball, baseball, just to kind of get out of it. Uh, knows, knows the power of, of like your mind in terms of, um, you know, torpedoing to torpedoing the moment and, and the enjoyment. Um, in that case, you kind of use the mind to get out of the moment in order to last a little bit longer. Uh, but as we get older, I think that's less and less the problem. And, uh, what I really want to do is just be in the moment more often. So I just, I, you know, from a very young age, I realized that my mind is not my best friend when it comes to my, my sexuality or my, even my connection, my relations to people. My mind is my best friend for sure when I'm working and when I'm having intellectual conversation, but when I'm, you know, again, 
face-to-face with someone with no words and trying to connect heart-to-heart, there's, my mind is, is only there as an obstacle. Uh, I, I'd like to actually talk a little bit about how I, how I came to this, which was, so about 10 years ago, again, back in Israel, and I was invited, Noah and I were invited, we, were just starting to date, we just started dating then, and we were invited to go to one of these festivals that I had heard about for years, and it's, you know, one of these new age Osho festivals, and I kind of never really went that route because I was way more into other things, but finally, there was a friend, a good friend, who said, come on, you're going to love this, and convinced us to come, and it was a five-day event in the nature, in in the desert, where there were a million different workshops. I think we went to three the entire time. <laughs> and the rest of the time we spent naked in the pool. There was like one place that you could be naked and it was in the pool and we were just there. That was it. But there was a quality, even though we didn't do a lot of the workshops, there was just a quality of the interaction that I experienced with different people, with both strangers and with people that, were, that I knew that were there in my camp. There was this kind of body-to-body, you know, there was this hugging going on, and there was a lot of looking into each other's eyes. And I'm not going to say that I discovered that there, but because what it felt like was actually, I was like, huh, I've been looking for this. I've been doing this my whole life. I just never knew that there was a whole group of people that had like terminology and language and also wanted to do it. And so for me, it was this discovery of true sense of, of home. I was like, wow, this, these, these, you know, these are my people. I, this is what I've been looking for. And I think since, since then, you know, we just couldn't get enough and went to a lot of different events of that, of that nature. And, uh, I ended up even proposing to to know at one of these events, and when I came to the U.S. and both wanted to move out of the corporate world and into something more heart based, and seeing that this didn't really exist in the way in the format that I wanted and remembered, I just I felt that it was kind of I felt like I had to do this. I felt like I wanted to. I needed to introduce other people that this, that this way of being, the state of being exists. I really wanted to introduce people that are working out there in regular tech jobs and in my business school classmates and everyone that this is a possibility. Because I think until people are introduced to it, they, they just go, go around their life not really knowing. And they just go around doing, doing the same thing they did before. A lot of them like, you know, happy, a lot of them not, but I just, you know, knowing what alive can feel like, knowing what, you know, having this, this visceral body forward connection can feel like, I really wanted to to share that with people. And that's why um, our events are my goal and they are focused a lot on inviting uh, newcomers to the scene, not only catering to people that have been doing this kind of work for a long time. How do you reach out to um, new people that may not have experienced this before? Well, one of the ways 
that I put a focus is I try to use language. <laughs> I try to use language that's less new agey mm-hmm. in, in a way. Um, I understand that for many people out there, they see kind of uh, some Sanskrit words and, you know, some things that feel woo-woo to them and they automatically label it not for them. And so one of my goals from the beginning was as much as possible, I can't say that I'm totally successful in this, but as much as possible to uh, remove those elements from the schedule, from the content uh, and keep keep the exercises, but just kind of a little bit work with the language because I, I feel like we're missing out. There's a missed opportunity that all of us in the New Age community uh, are missing, which is by using that kind of language, we're actually not appealing to people that are turned off by that. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of people that would still love the exercises themselves if you just called it something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other way that I do is I actually try to promote through other avenues. I partner with uh, different tech companies and, you know, around the Bay area where I get, you know, I insert ourselves into their mailing lists and I try to get, you know, friends of mine that work in different places to promote in different places. Um, I try to bring teachers from different uh, schools of, of thought. So like if I'm bringing dance teachers, I try not only to bring from the dance, like the conscious dance community, but also, different dance studios in the city or like different teachers that would come from out of town and just different, different ways of uh, appealing to a larger, broader audience, really kind of catering to that diversity. Yeah. It keeps it fresh for those of us who are used to going to workshops all the time um, to Mm -hmm. have unique experiences. So um, you talked about being part of this big, Osho community in Israel. Um, so, I have two questions for you around that. Um, were you uh, a devotee or sannyasin, whatever they call it, um, uh, of Osho's teachings? Um, and my second question is, why do you think so many Israelis um, got into that and brought it back <laughs> to create that whole culture there? Excellent question. Uh, so I am not a sannyasin, uh, though I did spend uh, a few weeks in Osho's ashram in Pune, but it was it was, it was a great experience uh, several years ago. Was or wasn't? It was. It was. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a great experience. It was only it was about six years ago. It's far after he's dead. Um, it's basically kind of a retreat for meditation, a meditation center retreat that, you know, has all of his old kind of meditations and ways of doing things. It was really fun. It was really, and it was really nice. But I was never named a sannyasin, and I kind of never really, um, was, I wouldn't consider myself a devotee. Uh-huh. I just kind of enjoyed some of the, some of the meditations and teachings. Uh, the reason that there's so many Israelis, it's a great question. And my hypothesis is, so it's a very common tradition in Israel. Everyone does the military because uh, it's mandatory, ages 18 to 21. And then it's a common tradition that at the age of 21, people typically go and take off for like a year and go backpacking somewhere in the world. 
And there was a time back in the 90s, back in the 90s, there was a time when uh, India was like the number one spot that Israelis post-military would go to travel. And it was because visas were really easy and it was really cheap there. And you could go for a full year and and live off of less than like $7,000 for a year. So Uh a lot of Israelis chose that. And therefore, a lot of Israelis found themselves in Pune. And these were some really happy days in Pune. There were a lot of young people. The sexuality vibe was running really high. And a lot of people became sannyasin and came back to Israel kind of with this new mission uh, for promoting this type of living and, and, and these types of activities. So I, I think that that's, that's the reason. The reason is just this kind of odd anomaly of Israelis being, you know, a lot of Israelis being in Pune around the 90s and then all those people coming back and as they were maturing into adulthood, they started businesses and retreat centers and workshop offerings, and that's kind of still till today. So it's just kind of carrying from that period. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Israel is definitely the strongest social community, I think, in the world, like maybe besides Pune, because of this. Yeah, it's kind, it of, kind like of interesting. It. Yeah. Cool. Um, so because you, you use the phrase, allow the mind to quiet. Um, I'm just wondering, like, so you did spend mm-hmm. some time at Osho's ashram taking some meditation classes, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you've had some, uh, like, lots of experiences in meditation to even know to use that phrase. Like, you're not saying, tell your mind to shut up. <laughs> you're saying, allow the mind to quiet. So can you tell me more about why that phrasing came through in your marketing materials and what, how, what, what, background do you have and what studies did you do that um, made you even know to use a phrase like that? Mm. So I think my background is mostly of that. It, it, I haven't studied in any kind of traditional sense uh, meditation. I've taken courses at different events similar to mine in Israel, I've done weekend workshops uh, in kind of intimacy and Tantra and different things where in every single uh, case I've had, there's been an element of meditation in there. Uh, there was a time also that I was right after business school, I was trying to work for this company called Search Inside Yourself, which is the, this arm that came out of Google that teaches meditation for executives. And I think during that time I was reading a lot about meditation and how, how to teach meditation uh, in, at the corporate level and without, again, without using a lot of the Eastern philosophy words and using mostly science. And so I think probably from, from, from that era uh, it, it creeps in, uh, that kind of terminology, but mostly I think it's just a sense of what is really happening. It's not like, yeah. I think it's just um, kind of words that came. I don't know exactly the origin. Yeah, but it sounds like I you do just know, tapped yeah. into kind of that universal truth of um, that if we get out of our own way, then we can just allow our mind to be still, which is its natural state. So it was it just struck me that you kind of tapped mm. into that. Yeah. Well, um, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, another thing you talked about was that you feel like your festivals are unique because you um, encourage people to not use substances or drink. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell me how you arrived at that policy and why you feel like that that's important? Because that is different than a lot of um, the culture, the festival culture that I've seen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking that. So I think that I have nothing against substance use in general. And, you know, by all means, if, if there's no kind of criticism or judgment um, towards people that want to do that, it's definitely me on other occasions. But I think the reason that I find it very important to be present and sober during our event is because we're, because of what I said about wanting people to really uh, try things out that are edgy for them. So I think it all begins, like in order, to, in order for people to really step out of their comfort zone and to really put themselves out on the line, to be vulnerable, to get to the point where they discover something about themselves that's new. In order to do that, they really got to go out on a ledge. And if, we're at, if I'm asking people, encouraging people to go out on a ledge, I want to create the, mo- the safest, cushiest possible container around them so that they know that if they fall, and of course, there's a chance that they'll fall because, you know, otherwise there'd be no risk in going out on a ledge. That they're falling, you know, into a very nice, soft, a very soft landing, and they're being held, and that the people around them can handle it, and can handle it if they suddenly, you know, are not feeling well, or if they suddenly need to say no. And so, for me, it all starts with how do we create the safest possible place so that people can take extra risk, and by encouraging people to be uh, substance-free and present in the right mind, really present with the people around them and with, the, with, with, with their partner, with everyone, that's what creates the safety that allows people to take even higher risks. So I think it's kind of like, it's, uh, and it's almost counterintuitive because a lot of people, they, they go to a party and they drink in order to reduce their inhibitions mm-hmm. so that they can go and do something potentially that they're afraid to. And so I claim mm-hmm. that that's, that's the wrong way to go about it. That's how you, you know, do things that you regret by, you know, by, by intoxicating yourself to reduce your inhibitions to take risks. And that, that's one way to do it, but I think that's not the best way to do it. I think the best way to do it is create this kind of safe environment where you can still take the same risk because you know that everyone's holding you every step of the way. Mm. Yeah, and most of us don't have that growing up, so it, it requires um, – developing some degree of trust in the community and in the people that are there um, to feel safe enough to take those risks um, just as our true selves without any kind of substances to buoy us up. <laughs> yeah. And I think, and I think as an example, so when, when someone, if I'm in an exercise with you and I'm a little bit, and maybe I'm a little bit scared and maybe I'm not sure that I want to, that, you know, how far I want to go with this or not, but just the knowledge, knowing that if I, you know, show any hesitation, I can trust that you're going to pick up on it and ask me, or if I say no, I can trust that you're going to really, you know, pick up that this is obviously something that's bothering me and, and right away respond in a respectful and, and, and comforting way and respect my no and whatever it is. So I think that's the part that makes it, um, that makes it so important to be the being present and sober. It's so that you can go right. and you can trust that the person in front of you or the group that you happen to be with are all 
everyone's got everyone's back. Nobody's going to kind of steamroll your, your, your decisions or not notice that you're having a hard time. Everyone notices and everyone's present with everyone. Yeah, I think consent works a lot better when there's no substances involved, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, another thing you said was when you went to the festival when you first met your partner um, and you spent the majority of the time naked in the pool, it made me think of the Soul Play festivals. And even on your website you talk about um, that uh, nudity is only allowed in the pool. And so uh, I remember having a really good time. It was beautiful weather and just wanting to just stay in the pool forever because it was in and around the pool, (laughs) um, the pool area. It was just such a childlike Garden of Eden. Um, So I love that you created that there in your festivals. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so nudity... Being naked in nature, in my opinion, is one of the most profound experiences we can all have. Uh, It's changed my, like the opportunity to do so has changed my life. It's changed the way I look at uh, bodies and body types, humans. So being naked with other people, it's just, it's an amazing experience. And I just, because it affected me in that way, I I knew how profound that was. And it's something that I wanted to offer. Uh, And that's why we, we do that. So it's a big, it's a big core tenet of, of our beliefs at Soul Play that bodies are beautiful and regardless of body size and regardless of body age or body type, it doesn't matter. Like all bodies are beautiful. And, you know, we want to be part of that retraining of people or detraining that, that there's, that bodies get categorized into beautiful or not, um, which is, which is a load of crap. And uh, so we believe in this all the way, including Soul Play Festival in June, which is adults only. Uh, in Soul Play Fall Fest, where we have kids, we still believe in the same beliefs. Like having kids there doesn't change the fact that bodies are beautiful and people should hang out, um, enjoying their own bodies and other people's. And we also do a full weekend called There in the end of July that the entire festival is uh, clothing optional. So not just the pool area, but really get the opportunity to walk around, you know, with as many, as many clothes as you'd like for an entire three, four days. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. Really oh, wonderful opportunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I want to go into a, a, another topic for the last bit of time that we have. Um, I'm very interested in intentional community. It's just a fascination of mine and um, all kinds of intentional communities, including the festival community that you've created, um, as well as uh, communities that live together. And I always look at how they handle conflicts because whenever the humans get together, it's inevitable that conflicts are going to arise. And I feel like it's really important that there be something in place in anticipation of that happening. So I know I remember attending a ZEG forum at the festival I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering how do you handle conflicts that arise while you're producing your events? And then also, because I'm sure with the team itself, it's inevitable that there's going to be conflicts. And, um, and also during the festival. And how does that compare to when you worked in the corporate world? <laughs> Good question. Um, so I think 
this, I mean, this has become even more important. Uh, it's always been important, but I think it's actually it's just come forward into the light in the past year with, with all of the Me Too movement and being an event and a community that promotes uh, sensual sexual experimentation and promotes, you know, different closeness and physical touch, we pay very, very close attention to uh, consent and have, you know, a very, very small tolerance for any kind of violations. Uh, the way we, we kind of handle this, it's, it's more of kind of a, we look at it a little bit in a holistic way. Uh, we do have a kind of consent and uh, policies lead on our team, and it's uh, Misha Bonaventura. And she basically helped us create, again, this, this uh, holistic approach where we start with education. So we have both on our website and we kind of periodically put out, we have our, um, you know, our approach to consent and to, in general, just interaction guidelines uh, between people. Uh, we also put out kind of different education pieces around triggering and uh, other talks around uh, how to appropriately respond to uh, different like boundary violations. And so we try to, to be part of the conversation, educating our community in how, in, in how not to, you know, in how not to enter into conflict, but also how to bond when that happens. Uh, beyond that, during the festivals, I think I mentioned this earlier, we do have a function that Misha leads called the Soul Support where we have uh, usually around five, six uh, trained counselors that walk around with uh, kind of lighted like uh, armbands. And they are there to support anyone who kind of needs uh, their support, either because they're emotionally overwhelmed with something that's going on, or if there's any kind of conflict that arises between participants or between participants and a staff member, uh, or between staff members. Uh, so we basically have a team of mediators. If, if it would be, I guess, within the staff, if it was a staff, it would be Misha that would do the mediation. And between kind of other, other in other occasions, it might be one of the other soul support members, all of whom are trained counselors. Uh, then on top of that, we have an anonymous, so some people don't feel comfortable or don't feel safe. Uh, coming forward, especially if they're reporting something that's like someone in power, something that happened to them. And so we have a anonymous slash non-anonymous uh, incident reporting form where people, we encourage people to report any incident. Uh, if they don't want to identify, they can report anonymously. And if they do want to identify, we will follow up with them and, you know, walk them through the process as much as they, as much as they need or desire. Um, and then on top of that, we kind of uh, have a like somewhat of an intervention policy. So we're putting together it's not it's not finished yet, but we're putting together a policy around when do we get involved? When does you know when does a violation uh, require our intervention, and what are the steps for doing so? In general, we believe more in a I think in a restorative type uh, approach where um, as much as possible bringing both parties' interests to the table and, you know, the sides come to some kind of mediated solution where one side might make amends or not, but that's kind of where we're going with this, but that's kind of in, in the works. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very comprehensive. Yeah. <laughs> good, good for you. And then how does that, 
compare to when you worked in the corporate world? Uh, well, considering that in the corporate world, probably there's very little of this. I probably worked in an organization that's one of the best in the world at these types of things. So in the organization that I worked in, there would be a like an ombuds person who would be a you know a third party that you could take uh, conflicts to that isn't your boss. Uh, now, whether or not this, they, that actually had any kind of uh, teeth or not, that's, that's a question that I'm not sure about, and it probably depends. I would have to bet. I think in the corporate world, it's still very prevalent that uh, if the person that you're in conflict with or are reporting is powerful enough or important enough to the organization, they will not get called out. That's kind of the, uh-huh. I, I think, the going norm still in most organizations. Right, right, right. We're not going to be that. We're the next. We're we're, we're trying to, to build a new culture. I'm sure there's organizations out there that are also doing this. So I don't know, but I kind of came. I did come from a very old school corporate culture. Right. So here's an edgy question for you: Is there um, a structure in place if somebody has, uh, you know, some kind of an issue with you? <laughs> um. So I think if the same structure would the same structure would apply. Uh, if someone, again, it's like this depends now if it's staff or participant, but just in, in a general, if, if someone had an issue with me or wanted to report some kind of behavior that I, you know, that, that was inappropriate or anything like that, I would definitely encourage them to, rep- to report it to uh, Misha. And then potentially what we would do is actually pick another person or, or, or council of people that are, uh, totally third party that aren't biased because I, I think Misha herself would probably be a little bit biased because I pay her. So uh-huh, right. we would so we would pro- so we would probably together have to agree on like a third party mediator that everyone would agree on um, that's not someone that I pay and would and kind of take it take it to that kind of a level. But I totally would stand um, and hold myself accountable to the standard and a higher standard than I'd hold anyone else. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, good for you because, like, you brought up the Me Too movement, so that's so in our consciousness these days. So I'm yep. really glad that you have that in place. Yeah, excellent. Um, so we're almost out of time, but I love how you always are on the leading edge with um, workshops <laughs> and um, having this accountability system in place. So what are one or two unique things that you are going to be doing this year in your festivals? Well, I just want to say that this year, I mean, last year was kind of the first year we did these different events. And so I just want to kind of put the shout out for people to know that we have three uh, big events going on, a Soul Play Festival in June, which is June 7th to 10th. And it's really an adult-only uh, playground of the soul where we get to really dive into our bodies and, and you know, deepen our, our connections with ourselves and with others. Uh, that's probably, you know, the one that, you know, if people are a little bit more interested in sensuality, we have a little bit more of that going on uh, during our June event. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. July, end of July, we have Bear or Bear Fest, and that's kind of the opportunity to, to go a whole weekend in nature of clothing optional. And it's a very special, smaller event where we go really deep with each other, and it's a much, much more intimate uh, gathering. And it's really about, you know, shedding our vulnerability and seeing how raw can we really get. And, you know, symbolically, we take off our clothes. And then also emotionally, we, we take off our, our defenses. And it's really kind of at the end of the weekend, it's, it's a very special feeling that we're all there holding each other 
in our vulnerability, and it's 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 quite it's sublime. And the third one, which is Soul Play Fall Fest, mid September, uh, it's quite similar, I'd say, to Soul Play in June, only that we invite families to come with their children, and it's a joyous uh, occasion where we kind of a little bit reduce the focus on um, sensual play and kind of increase the focus on uh, creativity and making and singing and music and just kind of the creation, creating of things. So that's kind of the, the little bit of difference. So they all have that same uh, feel of depth, connection, learning, growth, fun, and friends that you that stay your friends for a while. <laughs> Beautiful. Sounds really fun. Um, so in the last minute or so here, uh, if you'd like to tell our listeners how they can um, come to an event, and I believe you, you have an offer for our listeners as well. Yeah, so you can find out about all of our events. Please connect with us uh, through our website. It's www.soulplay.co, and that's where you'll be able to find out about all, all of our events. Uh, we also connect with us on Facebook. Soul, look for the group Soul Play Community or the page Soul Play Festivals. Uh, just when you start typing Soul Play, things of ours start coming up. We do have a special offer specifically for uh, Leading Edge Love Radio. And the first five people that use the code Leading Edge in their, to buy a ticket for Soul Play Festival, that'll be good for a $50 discount. So again, Leading Edge, one word. Uh, that's good for a fifty dollars discount for the first five people that uh, go to buy a ticket. Fabulous! Thank you. That's very generous. I'm excited. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Romy. It was a delight to get to know you better. Um, really loved hearing more about the festivals and how everything came about. So, thank you for what you're offering to the world. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's really been fun. Okay. I'm gonna hang up with you. Bye bye. And our listeners, I want to let you all know that next week I'll be speaking with Celeste and Danielle, who are longtime intimacy and sexuality coaches, and they've created the Somatica method of uh, sexual healing, and they train lots of people in that. So it's going to be really interesting to hear more about Celeste and Danielle and their programs. So please join us next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Good night.